Next Chapter Podcasts. In the late 17th century, Spain was the dominant colonial power in the Caribbean and American continents. They had arrived about 200 years earlier, ahead of all other European nations, and quickly claimed the entire region for themselves. This didn't stop other countries from competing with them, though. And while the Spanish held on to the area for a long time, robbing it of its wealth and massacring indigenous peoples along the way, enemies would be constantly trying to make inroads against them and carve out a piece of the Caribbean for themselves. One particularly vexing cannonball in the hull of the Spanish Armada was an Englishman named Henry Morgan, who, at every available turn, mocked, murdered, and stole from the Spanish until they feared him like no other pirate. Before we go too far into this story, though, there are a couple of things that we should get clear. Starting with, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the name Captain Morgan? If you said spice rum and frat parties, you're not alone. Indeed, Captain Morgan's rot gut is named for the infamous pirate we're discussing today. As you may have guessed, the grinning cartoon logo of Morgan in a long red coat and tri-corner hat isn't the most historically accurate representation of the man. There were only a few real images made of him, so close your eyes and try to imagine a man who was described as handsome, strong, brave, and charismatic, a cunning military mind with no lack of zest for life or zeal for high adventure. Picture him leading hundreds of men through swamps and jungles to sack coastal fortresses. Picture him standing victorious on the burning rubble of one of the Spanish Empire's most important cities. Now imagine that enormous empire turned against this one man who could just as easily be described as an opportunistic criminal as he could a patriotic hero, and that man holding his own against them. This is no ordinary rivalry. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. So who was Henry Morgan? How did he become a notorious marauder and later a member of the slave-owning ruling class of England's colonial Jamaica? Although there were rumors started in Morgan's day by surgeon and fellow sailor Alexandra Excumalon that he was a peasant who became an indentured servant in the Caribbean, the truth is that Morgan came from an aristocratic family of Welsh descent with a history of military service. It's believed that Escamillan had an axe to grind against Morgan, hence his disparaging the captain's name. One theory suggests he felt Morgan had taken more than his fair share of the treasure from a particularly grand adventure they shared on Panama's Pacific coast. So this gives the telling of the story an added bit of stickiness, as Escamillan was essentially Morgan's chief biographer, writing about his exploits in the book The Buccaneers of America, first published in 1678. But we'll come back to that in a bit. Morgan was 20 years old when he arrived in the Caribbean as an ensign in an invading force commissioned by Sir Oliver Cromwell to capture Hispaniola, the island that's home to both the Dominican Republic and Haiti from the Spanish. At this time, the Spanish were the dominant European power in the Caribbean. Indeed, when they first arrived in the Americas, they declared the entire Caribbean and parts of the American continent their own, with exclusive rights to the wealth contained therein. They named the continent and areas that bordered on the Caribbean the Spanish Main, 
And as bold as those claims may sound, the Spanish Empire had a strong track record for backing up their words and beliefs with action. Under the rule of several generations of Habsburgs, one of the most powerful dynasties in European history, the empire's influence reached across five continents, and it experienced a period of incredible creative expression in the arts and literature known as its Golden Age, despite also intensifying violent religious repression and persecution through its Inquisition. But by Morgan's day, a series of ineffectual monarchs, rampant inflation, revolts in its territories, and near-constant war with other European powers had the Spanish Empire burning through the copious amounts of gold and silver it was plundering from the New World. And Robert C. Ritchie, former director of research at the Huntington Library and author of Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates and The Lure of the Beach, says they were more vulnerable than they had ever been before. It's a state with the responsibilities of empire, based in a country where there is a very small tax base, so that the Spanish monarchy, which outwardly is enormous, outwardly incredibly successful, on the other hand, it's managing all the way out to Peru, the Philippines has got trans-Pacific trade. It's a very, very expensive empire to run and protect. And frankly, the Spanish Empire is not entirely successful at this. It goes bankrupt a few times, it stops payment. That always has an effect in Europe because the annual loads of Spanish silver floats European currencies. So Spain is weakened by the very enormity of its empire and by its enemies and slowly but surely goes into decline as these other empires, the Dutch, the English, are growing. It's for a while incredibly successful and expansive, and then the burdens of empire are more than the Spanish state can really manage. Other colonial powers in the Americas at this time included the French and the Dutch. In the early 17th century, English, French, and Dutch Bucanese took up residence on the island of Hispaniola. The Bucanese, what we call buccaneers or pirates today, survived on Hispaniola by smoking the pigs and cattle left on the island by the Spanish. The French word bucané means to smoke or broil meat and fish to hunt wild beasts for their skins. So in its purest form, buccaneer means jerky maker. These animals, once tended to by the Spanish, had become thriving feral populations on the island and provided a means of personal sustenance and also a money-making endeavor for the Bucanese, who sold jerky to passing ships. As you might have guessed, since they were willing to take the risk of moving to a heretofore unexplored part of the world, at least by Europeans, for the hope and promise of self-made wealth, Bucanese were open to any and all ways of making a profit. Sometimes they sold their jerky to crews of sailors shortly before they took their ships by force. The Spanish didn't like the fact that rival European powers were gaining an edge in the New World in this way, so they began killing off these animal populations. Forced to find a new way of making a living, the Bucanese started hunting Spaniards instead. The governments of England and France were loving all this chaos. Any ship carrying anything of value, from gold to chocolate to guano, was up for grabs. And the Bucanese gave the other early modern states a viable way to harass the Spanish in the New World that opened up new territory in the Caribbean at little expense. It was both easier and more economical for the English to give sailors already in the Caribbean the green light to attack the Spanish and keep the riches they stole as compensation rather than raise a navy. 
Basically, by forcing the Bucanese to adapt to life in the Caribbean without a steady food source, the Spanish created the pirate situation that would come to haunt them in Captain Morgan's time roughly 50 years after the first Bucanese began living on Hispaniola. But Graham A. Thomas, a naval historian and author of The Buccaneer King, The Story of Captain Morgan, asserts that it was no easy life on the high seas. Most of the pirates came from Europe, and Europe was at that time a largely rural community. Very little technology, and whatever technology there was was very, 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 very rudimentary. It was a hard, hard farming life, and a lot of the pirates wanted to get away from that life. And so the life on the high seas was very attractive. No laws. You can indulge in all of your vices. They can do whatever they want. They're running all over the place. They've got adventure. They've got the chance to make a massive fortune if they get the right thing, get it right. It's the way that we in the 20th century and the 21st century have painted pirates. It's the way the media has glamorized them and romanticized them. Uh, but they were basically criminals. They did some really nasty stuff. And of course, they had hardship too, which our media doesn't show, like the pirates of the Caribbean doesn't really show the fact that they would be without food for days. They would be perhaps even without water sometimes. And it was a really, really hard life. Disease, no disease had been stopped or wiped out at that point. Especially in the Caribbean, you're talking about tropical diseases, which were really, really awful. So you're, the chances of living a long life was very remote. And if you were wounded, you'd bleed out, you'd die, you'd get diseased, that sort of thing. England was late to the party, but recognized the wealth that could be thieved from the Americas if only they could challenge the Spanish. The silver and gold mines in South America were providing Spain with untold riches at the expense of the indigenous peoples whom they slaughtered in order to gain access to the precious metals. The English were searching for a foothold in the Americas that would give them access to that wealth too. Hence, Oliver Cromwell's planned attack on Hispaniola, which did not go well. Almost one-third of the men in Morgan's company died of disease. As a result, the army wasn't able to take over Hispaniola as planned. Instead, they set their sights on another nearby Spanish colonial holding, Jamaica. Because Jamaica was poorly defended, the English were able to take control of the island colony from the Spanish. In the years that followed, Jamaica became the epicenter of a long and drawn-out guerrilla war between two colonial powers. The Spanish, aided by the people that they had enslaved, fought the British at every turn. Even after the Spanish and English signed an armistice agreement officially ending the fighting, other colonies in the region supplied the Spanish guerrilla fighters in the cause against the British and arrested British vessels in Jamaican waters as pirates. After the attempted invasion of Hispaniola and the successful raid on Jamaica, Morgan saved up enough money to buy a ship of his own, and before long, he had his own crew. He teamed up with Christopher Mings, a British admiral who had a habit of raiding Spanish settlements. Together, they overtook the Jamaican city of Santiago by surprise, and blew up a large portion of it with 700 kegs of gunpowder while suffering only six casualties in the process. By 1963, Morgan had accrued some allies and was starting to build his own pirate cred. 
With 200 men, he sets out from Jamaica on a 20-month-long expedition that leads him overland 300 miles into Mexico. He anchors in the Yucatan Peninsula and survives the journey inland by befriending an indigenous tribe and living off the land. Morgan's crew sails through largely uncharted waters and raids many towns along the way. Eventually, they make their way south by way of a river to Lake Nicaragua, where they capture the well-heeled city of Granada by surprise. No one expects pirates on a lake. This earns Morgan notoriety among the Spanish, who begin calling him El Drac, a nod to Sir Francis Drake, the notorious English pirate from the century before. Drake stole loads of treasure, charmed Queen Elizabeth I, circumnavigated the globe, and helped save England from the Spanish Armada in 1587 and 1588. Though it's worth noting that several of Drake's expeditions against the Spanish were actually failures. And where Morgan was reportedly a fair, just, and equitable leader, fellow captains supposedly saw Drake as self-serving and undependable. At the age of 30, Morgan returns to Jamaica from his raid on Granada, a hero to the English. But, as is often the case in life, one good turn of fortune coincides with one of a more dubious nature. And so, at his time of triumph, Captain Morgan's uncle, Colonel Edward Morgan, dies in a separate expedition, leaving his two sons and three daughters to run his Jamaican plantation. At the time of his death, Edward Morgan was cash poor and the King of England owed him money. This financial situation led to Henry marrying Edward's daughter Elizabeth, Henry's cousin, and arranging a marriage of one of Elizabeth's sisters to a friend of his. Newly married, Morgan now has access to Jamaican high society and wastes no time shoring up his place among British Jamaica's elite, befriending the governor Thomas Modaford, who puts Morgan in charge of the construction of Fort Charles, a massive fortress that will guard the harbor entrance to Port Royal. The Spanish launch an attack on the stronghold quicker than the British expect, taking a number of captives and forcing them to labor in horrible conditions. But rather than punish Morgan for not anticipating the Spanish attack, Modaford opts to promote him to the rank of Admiral in January of 1668, giving him carte blanche to roll up on the Spanish however he sees fit. So Morgan was a privateer, he wasn't a pirate. Although everybody says, thinks he was a pirate, he wasn't, he was a privateer. And there is a distinction. The pirates would do things like they would take one ship when they were organized, then take a bigger ship, transfer their flags to the bigger ship, upgun their ships so they could take on the big, massive galleons of the Spanish. But a lot of pirates weren't organized, and they, they would just attack at will. And many, many pirates ended up dead. There was only a handful, like Morgan, who organized themselves and actually were a thorn in the side of the, of the Spanish. Because the privateers, they had letters of mark from their various governments, which sanctioned their actions. And that usually meant, to all intents and purposes, the privateers were either a, like a small navy or a small army. When they started doing that, when the privateers, people like Morgan, started to do that, that's when the Spanish had to start to take a lot of their resources that they were using to move all of their goods back to Spain. They had to start taking their resources, bringing their ships down, and, and bringing people over from Spain to, to deal specifically with the privateers. After being promoted to admiral, Morgan decides his first point of attack against the Spanish will be Puerto Principe, a town on the Cuban mainland. However, this plan is thwarted by a chance occurrence. 
a person enslaved by the Spanish escapes Morgan's men after overhearing their plan to attack Puerto Principe and reports the British attack to the Cuban governor. This led Morgan and his men to be much more secretive about their plans going forward. They adopt a policy of only announcing their raids to the entire crew at the very last minute before an attack. Rather than back down after the foible in Cuba, Admiral Morgan decides to ratchet up his approach against the Spanish. With 500 men and 15 ships at his command, Morgan decides to raid the town of Portobello, Panama, which is fortified by three separate strongholds and widely considered to be unreachable. Despite their underdog status, Morgan and his men proceed with this plan, leading to what many of them believe to be their own certain deaths. A surprising thing to note, since we think of pirates as synonymous with fights at sea, is that Morgan fought most of his battles on land. The ships at his disposal were light vessels, not big warships. These smaller ships were essentially a means of transporting his buccaneer crews from one place to another. And, unlike the Navy, all ships were optional to crew, meaning buccaneers always had the right to not participate in a raid if they so chose. Another thing worth mentioning is, forget what you thought you knew about pirates and buried treasure. After a battle was won, spoils were split up on the spot. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Morgan's company came upon Portobello by land and slaughtered every Spaniard they found en route to the town center. Using ultra-violent tactics, they proved to be efficient merchants of death. By dawn, they secure two of the three forts and move on to the town. Morgan rallies his men for the final attack, knowing the hardest battle is yet to come, as they no longer have the element of surprise on their side and know full well that the Spanish forces await them. As they approach the third and final fort, Morgan and his men are attacked by cannon and musket fire. As they attempt to scale the fortress walls, the Spanish hurl fire pots, clay pots filled with explosives, and grenades down on the pirates. Morgan and his men are outnumbered six to one, and in typical buccaneer fashion, have only small arms at the ready. A typical buccaneer combatant came armed with a cutlass, musket, and one or two pistols each. While this weaponry was much weaker than, say, a cannon, this combination of arms worked well for their style of combat. The strategy behind a pirate raid was to suppress opposing fire, making it impossible for the men and forts to fire back. By arming themselves with a musket and one or two pistols, Morgan's men were able to use their guns in combination with one another, resulting in near-continuous firepower. And they had the added motivation to work together 
because if they succeeded, they would be rewarded immediately with riches. And if they failed, they would die. Those kind of stakes are great for team bonding. You've got to be a captain who's successful. If you're not successful, they'll simply get rid of you and promote somebody else. And it's that sense they're floating democracies. If, if you're not successful, if you're not able to control the ship, to get it to a place where it can be profitable for the men on board, you're not you know, going to be captain for very long. And a captain like Morgan, who is successful, who knows what it's about, best thing to do is to raid towns. You can do that, you better take a lot of people. He's very successful at raising men. And so you become a big name by being successful, whether you're Blackbeard, Kid, Morgan, Drake. These are all men who are very successful at their trade. You know, they manage a ship. You've got to keep the men satisfied, which means keeping the booty going. It can be a tough job and it could be dangerous. You can be killed by your own men if they don't like what you're doing. But if you're successful and you keep everybody happy, then you, know, you can sail into port and do deals with colonial governors and get coverage for it and be called a privateer rather than a pirate. Despite outnumbering Morgan's men, the Spanish lost the third fort. And since capturing Portobello was considered nigh on impossible, this upset defeat at the hands of Admiral Morgan sent shockwaves through the Caribbean. It was a major blow to Spanish esteem and hegemony in the region. Admiral Morgan's men made a name for themselves with their willingness to conduct brutal assaults on both Spanish soldiers and citizens in the Caribbean. Torture was not unheard of. They were after riches, after all. Morgan's men were known for hanging men by their testicles until they would fall to the ground, and then stabbing them and leaving them to die. But then again, it's not totally clear if he was directly implicated in this, whether men under his command were taking matters into their own hands, or it was just another case of Alexandra Escamillan's muckraking. To keep the pirates from torching Portobello to the ground, the Spanish paid them more than 100,000 pieces of eight, the term for Spanish dollar coins at the time, so named because they were often cut into pieces for smaller currency. Upon their return to Jamaica, Morgan and his men were high on the hog and wasted no time getting the party started. They would spend it all on booze, women, and whatever else until the last golden doubloon was a twinkle in the bottom of a glass of grog, marking the time when they would set sail once more and do it all again. That time came in October 1668, when Admiral Morgan took his men east to Venezuela for an attack on Maracaibo in what became known as a stunning display of daring-do that showcased Morgan's exceptional mind for battle and solidified the fear he struck in the Spaniards' hearts. He posed such a threat, in fact, that the empire could no longer ignore him as some kind of minor annoyance. And so, the crown sent forth a man that they believed to be the only one who could put an end to this tactically brilliant buccaneer. That man was Don Alonso de Campos y Espinosa, commander of the Spanish fleet charged with ending piracy in the Caribbean. Though Don Alonso's differences from Morgan may have been the main reason for the eventual outcome of the two men's meeting. Don Alonso was a nobleman. He couldn't imagine that he could possibly be outthought by some, what he would consider to be a pirate. To him, that was out of the question. He was way better than any of these guys that he was supposedly fighting. He represented the King of Spain, and he had the complete arrogance that nothing could defeat him. And 
while Morgan himself was capable of adapting quickly to a situation. Don Alonso was rigid, traditional, he was bound by duty to his king, and he was bound by his arrogance and his belief of his superior birthright. So while Morgan was a brilliant and subtle tactician, Don Alonso was the reverse. The governor, Sir Thomas Modifjord, he said that Morgan was tanned and muscular with a strong will, quick brain, and dynamic personality. He was brave and had that special quality that made men from all nationalities, different languages, different cultures, and from different backgrounds follow him over some of the harshest terrain, over hundreds of miles, and then return to boast about it in the taverns and bars, how they had followed Admiral Henry Morgan. He was a kind of man who in any society, right up to the present day, would be called a hero. Maracaibo is a town in Venezuela, located along the side of a channel that feeds into the Caribbean Sea and leads to Lake Maracaibo. When Morgan and his men arrived for the plunder, there weren't many Spanish troops in the town, and the ones that were there feared what would happen if they managed to capture the English pirates. Instead, it was Morgan and his men who ended up capturing the Spanish troops. Some were forced into guide service, others they tortured for information on the whereabouts of the valuables. The rest, they killed. The attack went splendidly, about as well as could be hoped for. That is, until Morgan and his men encountered an unexpected wrinkle. The only exit route from Maracaibo, a channel that feeds into the Caribbean Sea, was blocked by Don Alonso de Campos y Espinosa's ships. The Spanish sent a communique to Morgan, telling him to surrender, or else his men would be killed. An interesting detail about pirate bylaws is that a captain only retained 100% control over his men when they were in an active battle. Other matters were discussed until a consensus was reached. So it was that together, Morgan and his men decided they would ignore Don Alonso's demand and fight their way out of the situation they found themselves in. Earlier in the sacking of Maracaibo, Morgan managed to capture a merchant vessel. It was this ship that was to be used in a daring Hail Mary attempt to get out of the tight spot that the men were in with their backs to land and no way out to sea. Unlike other encounters with Spanish troops guarding ports and towns in the New World, Morgan knew that the men in the fleet pinning him down were battle-tested and would fight to the bitter end. There was also the small matter of the cannons on board the ships in the Spanish fleet. No matter how feisty he and his men were, Morgan knew they weren't going to win this fight with Braun alone. They needed to outfox them. That's why they decided to pull an old trick with the merchant vessel, a fire ship. The pirates loaded the ship with cannons and wooden cutouts at themselves, so it looked like the ship was ready for an attack. Unbeknownst to the Spanish, the ship was also coated in flammable materials, so when it sailed directly at the Spanish flagship, the Magdalene, the Spanish troops realized too late that they had been duped. The scant crew aboard the fire ship abandoned it by canoe and set it ablaze. The fire spread quickly to the Magdalene, and the men aboard jumped into the sea to avoid burning alive. Another ship in the fleet, the Soledad, tried to cut and run from Morgan and his men, but had a mechanical problem that made sailing impossible. Morgan and company boarded the Soledad as its crew jumped from the decks to escape. They fixed the mechanical issue rather quickly, and with this major coup, were nearly on their way to an unbelievable escape. Against the ropes after the embarrassing twist with the fire ship, 
Don Alonzo and his men scrambled to reinforce the fort with cannon and musketeers in an attempt to prevent Morgan from sailing into the Caribbean Sea. Meanwhile, Morgan and his men busied themselves over the course of a day with the method by which they would extricate themselves from danger. First, it should be known that the Spaniards in town brought Morgan a ransom payment for him to leave peacefully if they brought him Alonzo. He agreed. Only, Alonzo was unwilling to surrender. Morgan and his men boarded canoes and sailed to the bank as though they were disembarking. But really, they were laid down unseen in the bottom of the small boats, paddling back to the Magdalen on the side not visible to the Spanish. The Spanish were convinced of an impending attack from the land, and so paid little attention to the canoes. Late that night, Morgan lifted anchor aboard his ships and slowly approached the fort before he gave the order to open full sail, thus moving quickly out of the range of the Spanish cannons. The pirates made their way back to their headquarters in Port Royal, Jamaica, where the men celebrated their remarkable escape in traditional pirate fashion once again, with rum, whoring, and gambling. This act truly endeared Morgan to the English colonists in Jamaica, setting the stage for his biggest raid yet. In 1670, Morgan sets his sights on Panama City, the greatest prize in the New World, the second largest city in all of South America, and a major port of the Spanish silver mines. To accomplish the task, he brings 2,000 buccaneers aboard approximately 36 ships. It wasn't until 1671 that they made landfall at the Isthmus of Panama, a narrow strip of land with sea on either side. Remember, this is long before the construction of the Panama Canal, so Morgan and his men are forced to march through the jungle to reach their destination. Along the way, they're stricken with disease and forced to eat rats, snakes, and whatever else they can find. After marching for nine days, they reach the Pacific Ocean, where they rest before marching on to Panama. Once they arrive, they find themselves outnumbered by the rested city defenders who fight the invaders on a grassy plain. But it's not long before the Spanish learn that despite their superior numbers, they're no match for Morgan's trained killers. The result is a crushing defeat followed by Morgan and his men burning the city. Or at least, that was the story that was told at the time. Later historians believe that the fire that consumed the city either started by accident or was set by the fleeing Spanish governor in a final act of defiance. This obfuscation of the facts ties into what I mentioned earlier about the controversy surrounding Morgan's reputation. So let's get into it. Despite the victory in Panama City, the spoils were much smaller than expected. There were, after all, 2,000 buccaneers who took part in the voyage, march, and battle. And to this day, rumors persist that Morgan took more than his fair share of the booty. But most historians dispute this. The prevailing thought is that the imagined wealth just didn't exist. There was also the matter of a Spanish treasure galleon called La Santisma Trinidad, which eluded capture by heading out to sea with many riches on board. But the truth rarely matters when the person telling the story has their own agenda. And like I said, Morgan's erstwhile biographer, Alexandra Escamillon, didn't have the highest opinion of the man, which is why Morgan was later able to take the English publishers of Escamillon's book to court for slander and successfully force them to remove the accusations of torture, rape, and any betrayal of his men. That wasn't the end of Morgan's need to defend his own honor and standing in British society. Right around the time that he embarked on his Panamanian adventure, England and Spain signed the Treaty of Madrid, which declared peace in the Americas and effectively put an end to privateering commissions. But word traveled slowly in those days, 
and Morgan wasn't informed of this truce in time to stop his assault. And by the time the smoke cleared over the ruins of Panama City, the Spanish were ready to reignite the war. Admiral Morgan was summoned by King Charles II to Whitechapel, England later that year to face charges of piracy for the raid on Panama City. But he was able to sweet-talk his way out of the sticky situation with the crown. In the end, the charges were dropped. King Charles has Morgan knighted and names him Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica, a position he held for seven years. After an intense and bloody career, Henry Morgan enjoyed quieter years at the end of his life. Though his retirement into the position of wealthy plantation owner was obviously not entirely free from violence, including a failed venture into recapturing a group of people who were formerly enslaved but had escaped called the Jamaican Maroons of Juan de Serres. In the end, he succumbed to illness exasperated by excessive drinking at the age of 53 in 1688, a fate far more peaceful than most pirates were ever afforded. As for those ragtag crews of renegades that lived on the fringes of the known world, the winds of fortune eventually turned against them. As the French, Dutch, and English grew in power, they came to rely on more legitimate sources of commerce and turned their own navies against piracy. This might seem like a boon to the Spanish, but of course, their rivals' ascension only came at their own expense. The Spanish Empire had passed the peak of its glory. It would undergo a brief revival in the 18th century as Habsburg rule gave way to the Bourbon dynasty, bringing with it major reforms. But the slow decline had already begun. For all of the research that I've done, I don't see piracy as being something that would bring down the empire. Piracy didn't bring down the British Empire. It didn't bring down the French Empire. It isn't bringing down the American Empire, even though a piracy in the West Indies and in North Africa and all that sort of stuff that's going on today, it's not bringing it down. It's because they are isolated incidences, and they were isolated incidences in those days. Privateering, on the other hand, the kind of thing that Morgan was doing, when he stopped doing it, there were other privateers that took over that continued to do that. At the end of the day, I think there would have been a lot of different factors, shall we say, that would have brought down the Spanish Empire and lowered their influence. They were stretched too far, stretched too thin. They were bloated. Their administration was clunky. It was not working properly. They had other empires that were coming up. And the more those ones grew, the more the Spanish dropped. So you know, I think it was a, a whole series of different things. But I think that privateering probably played a very small part in it. But it played a part. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is written by Ben Austin Docampo, with help from James Levine and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef, and remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Next Chapter Podcasts.